Good morning. Uh, it's really great to be back. Um, it really is. And to be able to fellowship together inside. Um, it's a wonderful blessing as well. Some things we we didn't learn, we didn't appreciate until this whole last year transpired, right? Just being together. And I uh, have the opportunity and privilege to interact with a lot of different pastors and churches all around the world. And just kind of seeing the impact of this uh, has been quite an experience. In fact, uh, last week, I think, uh, the week before, I was asked to preach a sermon at one of the churches. I've been doing that. They'll just record me. But he said, Pastor, I need, can you speak on face-to-face fellowship? And this was a Filipino brother who had asked that. So, I mean, we're experiencing the challenges of these last year for sure. And Jay, don't worry. Uh, you, you are irreplaceable, brother, so uh, uh, don't worry about it. <laughs> Though I did try to sneak in your office and see if you've been taking care of the place. Oh, oh, okay. (laughs) But it's hard to believe it's been a year. Uh, It's kind of like hospital time. You know, if you've spent any time in the hospital where you're in there and time just moves like a snail at a snail's pace. And then sort of later on you go, wow, where did the time go when we were in there? And it's kind of the same thing to me anyway as far as what has been happening these last 12 months. They've been hard. They've brought a lot of grief, a lot of suffering, a lot of difficulties, a lot of trials. At the same time, God has also used them for good these last 12 months. I've seen it in uh, the ministry that I'm involved in and training pastors overseas um, you know, prior to 2020, in March of 2020, my training was all in person. And then, of course, things took place. Traveling was no longer an option. Uh, that's when the word Zoom no longer meant getting somewhere quickly, right? I mean, it's got a, we've got a whole new vocabulary now. And so, like so many, I transitioned to online instruction. In fact, you saw in the interviews there, everybody was online. I really liked the Tim and Tony, they, they must have had their phone on the floor or something. It kind of felt weird. But, but right, all that, that's commonplace now, all over the world. That's how we are interacting. And so I transitioned online, and at first I was pretty unhappy with it. I really didn't have any experience with that. And I wanted to be face-to-face with these guys because one of the precious parts of the ministry I do is being with the men and spending time with them, not just in instruction, but the fellowship that we share, the sharpening of one another. But that wasn't possible. So I was struggling with my attitude and all of that, but then I began to see God use the circumstances for good. Uh, one of the things was, previously I was only able to be with the men because I teach modules a couple of weeks out of the year, but now because of the online instruction, it was a weekly interaction that we had. And that was a real blessing. It's been a real blessing. The, the online training also has given me the opportunity to record my sessions with them, which some of the guys, their English is a little bit more of a challenge, and so they're able to rewatch. Uh, it's been more effective in their learning, uh, something I hadn't come to realize. And also, too, uh, because people were getting used to this online instruction, God has opened up several doors that were completely unexpected. Um, I was, I've been teaching three groups, three different groups in the Philippines on a weekly basis, but back in October, uh, the Lord added a, another group from pastors in Malaysia and Myanmar that we can do online. And then uh, recently, uh, I've been working with a pastor in Pakistan to start a group there. Um, 
opportunity has also risen maybe later in the fall to do some work in Indonesia. Right now, it's, it's pr- primarily because we've been able to enter into these relationships online and be able to do that. And so the Lord's opened up these doors. I'm especially excited about the opportunity in Pakistan, um, where there's so much <laughs> I could share about that. Maybe just give you a brief um, a glimpse into what's going on there. There's a faithful pastor who I've built a relationship with, actually, through the Philippines. He had come to the Philippines for missions, uh, for um, seminary. And so I built a relationship there, and he'd been asking me to come to Pakistan and do training, but just the Lord, uh, the circumstances weren't there uh, to do that. But then uh, because of COVID, because of the online uh, training that everyone is getting used to now, we were able to um, to establish an, a, a way to set up doing training there. And in fact, I've done two conferences already uh, in Pakistan via Zoom. Uh, the first one that he had set up with, was with a group of pastors and leaders from underground churches along the Afghan border. And you talk about a sobering experience um, They'd asked me to speak on suffering, of all things. Yeah, exactly. I'm like, I want to sit and listen to you teach me about that. But uh, they asked to speak on suffering and evangelism, so I just reminded myself, it's the Word of God, it's His Spirit, it's not me and my experiences that will speak to them. And so I just gave attention to Paul's example of how he endured suffering and continued to preach the gospel. And then at the end of this conference... um, they would stand up and give testimony as to how the message impacted them or how the conference impacted them. Several of them got up and just said, you know, this is the first time in several years I've been able to sing out loud with fellow believers. (laughs) I'm going to cry again. Um, Because they can't be heard. They gather, but they can't be heard. Um. One person, one pastor stood up and said he had never heard a sermon which actually was explaining the passage. The pastor. Um, another stood up and expressed how alone he had felt. And then when I told him there were brothers and sisters in the U.S. praying for him, uh, he just that, and he, and he said even just me showing up on a camera meant so much. Uh, to them, remember Hebrews thirteen. It talks about remember those who are in prison, as if you were there with them and enduring their suffering. That matters. Your prayers matter. Um, so I was extremely sobered. But what really hit me was at the end of the conference, they all stood up. They began to pray for America. In this country, right where we see flags being burned and slogans "Death to America," these. People, these dear brothers and sisters were praying for life for America and that God would do a work here. And they were fervent in that prayer. It was, it was a sobering but encouraging experience. I had another opportunity to do a conference uh, on the eastern side of the country uh, on expository preaching. There were about over 200 pastors came and, and were a part of that. And, and again, just at the end, our focus of the, my messages there was on just understanding the context, recognizing the author's intent, that you can't say what a text means today until you understood what it meant when the original author wrote it. Just some basic principles like that. And again, the men stood up. One guy stood up and he said, I would give anything to preach the Bible the way God intended. And he didn't have much. 
Um, again, just very humbled by that opportunity. There's a great need all over the world, a need for training. They don't have access to it there to the extent that, again, this one pastor traveled to the Philippines to be able to get trained. These brothers and sisters endure so much persecution, the likes of which I think many of us will never face, even on a daily basis. And yet they continue to proclaim the gospel openly. They continue to desire to be faithful in teaching and and preaching and expressing what God has said to his people. And uh, I just would ask you to please pray. Uh, Pray for this training opportunity. We're trying to gather 20 or 30 men from all around the country who speak English well so that they can be trained and then be able to to bring that training to others uh, in their own language, in their own context. But the enemy has been working hard against that. Uh, This dear brother that I've spoken to you about um, a few months ago got into a bus. A man sat next to him and uh, began to name off all of his children's names his address, where they go to school, uh, his wife's name, and then shows him a gun and says, stop talking about Jesus. Um, So they ended up moving to a safer area, but then recently, in the last few weeks, he received word that a formal complaint had been written against him, claiming that he's trying to proselytize Muslims. And so right now he's in uh, hiding uh, from his family uh, because they felt that would be the best so I just please pray for him, uh, pray for his family. I don't want to name him uh, publicly, but just I think many of you know. I just And the Lord, of course, will know. But uh, pray that the training will be able to happen. We need some funds to get it going. And then obviously our, our dear brother, just the Lord's protection over him. And many like him. He sent me pictures of fellow pastors that he knew who, uh, pictures of their dead bodies. They had been shot, killed in the city openly. Um wow, this is turning into a more sobering time than I thought it would be. But I, I just we all, we all need a glimpse. We all need to remember this is happening to our brothers and sisters today. This is our family. And just, just want to stir our own hearts to remember them in prayer and to remember um, the needs around the world. This, this COVID has had a tremendous impact on so many. And uh, so our brothers and sisters have needs. In fact, I just, can I take a moment to, to lead us in prayer? for them before we get to the message. Father, we're so uh, affected by the testimony of our brothers and sisters around the world and, Lord, the what they are enduring, many of which we have no idea what they are encountering. Yet we know from your word, we know even from experiences and relationships we might have with those around the world, we, we know that these things do take place, that many of our own family have had their lives threatened or even taken by those who hate you, those who hate your son. And Lord, we understand they ultimately are not the enemy. They are the mission field. They are instruments in the hands of of our enemy. So I pray, Lord, I pray for the nation of Pakistan, just for a revival there. I pray for our dear brother there, that you would protect him and his family. Lord, that you might allow for training to take place there among the pastors who so desperately want to know how to study and accurately apply and teach your word. 
Lord, I thank you for the other many missionaries that, that are part of this church and who we got to see and hear from briefly this morning. And just pray, Lord, you would continue to use each of them in the context of the local church to make an impact for your kingdom. Thank you for their sacrifices. Thank you for their desire to help others, many in other countries. So we're grateful for that. And we know ultimately you're worthy and deserve all of this. You deserve, as Paul has said, our own lives as well. And so we want to live for you. I pray, Lord, you would use uh, your word this morning to move us in that direction, that we would be, uh, Lord, sold out for your mission, sold out for proclaiming the Lord Jesus Christ and, and supporting and partnering with those who are doing it, not only here in this community, but around the world. Please, Lord, may your spirit do a work this morning. In Christ's name, amen. Well, when I, as many of you know, maybe my story, I used to work in the electronics industry, and uh, one of the things that we would often do, my boss would often hold these uh, things he called SWOT analyses. Can I get an amen? Jim Stone. Uh, now, SWOT, S-W-O-T, stands for Strengths, Weaknesses, Opportunities, and Threats. And, and so my boss, uh, as, as well as many other companies, would do this to sort of assess where things are at in their particular um, um, thing that they're doing as far as their industry. Um, and so there were, uh, you know, in these discussions, we would talk about, you know, what was working what were our strengths, what was not working, what were our weaknesses, where were there opportunities to, to further succeed in, in what we were doing, and what were the threats. So those were the, the various categories. And uh, before, you know, I know at times even Jim would lead us in th- these things at our elder retreats. So now that you're back on the board, Jim, right? Are we going back there? Yes, all right. Get the big poster out and go to work. But before we criticize that, it may surprise you to know that Paul does a SWOT analysis of sorts with the church at Philippi. Now, he doesn't use the, those, that terminology, but in his letter to them, he identifies strengths and weaknesses, opportunities and threats to their gospel witness. That is what the letter really is about. In fact, the focus of the letter overall uh, is primarily upon the threats to their gospel witness. He identifies two specifically. Uh, one is found in chapter 3 where he talks about the, the Judaizers who were trying to uh, push this works-based salvation upon them. And so he warns them of that even from his own life experience. But there's a second threat, one that receives most of his attention, one that really is the focus of the entire letter. And if we were do, to do a, a SWOT analysis here of this church, of the churches in America, I think the same threat exists among us. It's a threat that has only been magnified these last 12 months, one that I think has been exposed. But, but before we get to that, it's important that we understand the background to this letter. What, what is the setting of the letter to the Philippians? What is the context, the circumstances by which he wrote? So I want to take you, take you back in your mind's eye to, to Rome. Back in the early 60s of the first century. Uh, Picture, if you will, Paul. He's under house arrest. He's chained to a Roman soldier. He has appealed to Caesar uh, for a a trial. And so he's awaiting that trial. He's been in prison maybe three plus years by this point. And one day, this man named Epaphroditus shows up. 
Uh, he's a co-laborer in the ministry, uh, someone that he has worked with, and he visits Paul, and he has a gift for Paul from the believers in Philippi. Now, we have to remember that back in the Roman uh, incarceration, they didn't provide for the prisoners. You had to depend on friends and family to, for your provisions. And so, church at Philippi, recognizing this, sent him a gift. We don't know if it was money, if it was clothing, food, probably all of these things. And so they provide for him while he is in prison. So Paul is receiving this care package from them. And at the same time, Epaphroditus also gives an update of what was happening in the Philippian church. And we see that often in the epistles, right? Uh, men would come to Paul who would minister to him, but also share with him what was going on in the churches that he was connected to. Paul recognized the importance of the local church, by the way, in his mission work. And so... Uh, He receives this report from Epaphroditus, and while he's encouraged by the gift that they send him, there's something that Epaphroditus says that brings Paul concern. There's something, a situation that is taking place within the Philippian church that gets Paul's attention. And he is so uh, troubled or concerned about that that he's prompted to write this letter, not only to thank them for the gift he had received, but primarily to uh, address this particular situation that he became aware of. So Paul begins uh, his letter uh, expressing his encouragement uh, that he hears their gospel witness, their testimony. In fact, he says in chapter 1, verse 5, if you could be turning to Philippians, by the way, we're going to be spending our time here. Philippians 1, verse 5, he says this, I thank my God in view of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And that partnership was not just through their uh, support, but their actual participation in the Great Commission and bringing forth the message of Christ within their own community. And Paul saw that as a partnership. And after this opening commendation in verse 5, Paul then goes on and expresses his great joy in several verses after that of the joy that the gospel is going forth, even though he is in prison. And even though there are those who were uh, envious of him, still the gospel was being proclaimed. And so he expressed how much he felt joy with that. But at the same time, and we can understand this, given all that Paul had gone through in his life, at the same time, he's like, you know, I wouldn't mind if the Lord just took me. Uh, He said, to depart and be with Christ, that's what I want. But then he realizes this. He says, but it's much better for me to stay for your sake. And not just because of the friendship they had, but because of the partnership in the gospel mission. Look at verse 24 of chapter 1. He says this, to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with, uh, with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. And so, in in light of the advancement of the gospel, in light of their partnership in the Great Commission, in light of their own Christian witness, Paul then brings them to a key statement in his letter. And that comes in verse 27. In fact, here he gives the first exhortation, the first command in the letter to the Philippians. Look there with me, verse 27. Paul tells them, In light of their gospel witness, in light of the progress of the gospel, in light of their partnership, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. This is the key verse within the letter. 
And again, we're reminded of Paul's concern that the gospel would go forth in the community in which they live. And his greatest concern is that they would be a testimony as they bring that gospel to their community. And notice this, he says, this one thing I I want you to do, this is the one focus I want you to have. This is what demands your greatest attention, and that is this, conduct yourselves in a worthy manner, a manner worthy of the gospel. Live in such a way that your life matches your message, that your walk matches your talk. We've probably heard many messages on that uh, type of theme over the years. But notice here, Paul not only tells them to do that in a general sense, he gives a specific way that they are to conduct themselves in a manner worthy of the gospel so that their gospel witness would continue and be fruitful. Notice what he says. Again, take a look at the latter half of verse 27. Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel so that, here's the reason, so that I will hear you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Now think about this for a minute. Paul here says, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. And you would think after that he would just bring up maybe something like, so walk in holiness, uh, walk in purity. Uh, He could have talked about loving one another or being in the word. But notice what it is that he focuses on. Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel by what? Being unified. (laughs) Unity. Because, you see, he was greatly concerned that a primary threat, a major threat to their gospel testimony, to their gospel witness, was disunity. Disunity. He doesn't even bring up heresy here. He doesn't even bring up other uh, issues that could undermine the gospel. He talks about here, conduct yourselves in a manner that your walk matches your talk by being one mind, striving together. Intent on one purpose. And this threat of disunity here was not just a general sense. There was something happening within the church at Philippi, within this burgeoning ministry, within this uh, uh, light in the midst of a very dark city. There was something happening there that was threatening that gospel witness. And Paul mentions it specifically later in chapter 4. Take a look there with me. Chapter 4, verse 1. Oh, I love those pages turning. Not everybody has a device with their Bible on it, huh? There's something more godly, I think, about actually having a book. I, I don't know. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to study that. Yeah. <laughs> Notice what he says in chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and crown, in this way stand firm. Same word he used back in 1. 27, stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. I urge Yodia and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. Indeed, true companion, I ask that you also help these women who have shared in my struggle, who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Now here we we, we learn of a particular situation, one that Epaphrodites must have told him about, and one that gets Paul's attention. He mentions here these two prominent members of the church who are in a dispute, two ladies that are having a conflict. And we aren't told what the conflict is over or the specifics of it, but Paul here, he calls others in the church to come alongside these ladies to help them resolve 
this issue that they had. And notice, these women are not some passers-by, not some immature believers. They weren't having some cat fight here between two new Christians. These were, were godly, mature women who had participated in the ministry of the gospel within the church at Philippi. Now, when we first read this, perhaps if you know, as you're reading through Philippians and you come to this verse sort of later in the chap- later in the letter, you know, often Paul mentions names and people towards the end of his letter. And at times we can tend to just kind of slide through those, right? We're just trying to get through our Bible reading. So I'm going to get through Philippians here, have a few names, okay. We might not recognize the significance of what Paul is pointing out here with these two particular ladies and calling others to come alongside them. Really, I think those two verses are the reason, the primary reason Paul wrote this letter. Because he hears about the testimony of this church. He hears about the wonderful impact they're having in the community. But he recognizes, oh, that situation, if that's not taken care of, it's a significant threat to that witness. And we know, I believe, from looking and studying the letter, we know this is really a focus and concern because Paul begins laying the groundwork of the importance of unity all the way back in the beginning of his letter. He's been aiming his letter toward this very situation, providing the, the understanding of unity, importance of unity, illustration of unity, moving towards that very situation that he brings up and mentions here in chapter 4. He gives an exhortation again in 127 to live a life that is worthy of the gospel by standing firm together in the faith, one mind, striving together, he says. And then right after that, take a look at chapter 2. I know I'm skipping around here. We'll land at a place in a minute, but I want you to get a feel for this whole letter. Look at chapter 2. Right after he, after he talks about, gives that first exhortation to conduct themselves in a manner worthy of the gospel by being unified, he says this, chapter 2, and I'll begin in verse 2. Uh, since they have been saved, he says, since you are saved, make my joy complete by being of, notice, the same mind, maintaining the same love. United in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, he says, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Again, what is it Paul zeroes in here on? What is it that he's focusing his attention on? Unity. Unity. Over and over, he repeats it, right? Same mind, same love, united in spirit, intent on on one purpose. And listen, he's not bringing this up randomly. Again, he's preparing them and giving them an understanding for the application which is coming, specific to that situation with the two saints within the church that were in a conflict. You know, I find it interesting. I think it was on this Sunday, last March, when Pastor Alex preached on those very same verses from Philippians 2. Um, Could it be the Lord was preparing us for what was to follow? This was right before the shutdown. Because, brothers and sisters, just like the Philippian church, one of the greatest threats to our church is not what is happening around us, but what's happening among us. Calvary Bible Church, when it comes to our mission, the mission that our Lord and Savior has given us to make disciples, we must, like 
not let what is going outside the church draw our attention away from what's going on inside. The threat isn't out there. It's in here. So after Paul here, he again exhorts them to unity in these first four verses of chapter 2. He then describes the ultimate example of what's required to have unity, and that is humility. And the example of that humility is the Lord Jesus Christ, right? Who, who becomes a man. How humbling is that? And not only that, suffers a humiliating death on a cross, a death he did not deserve. So Paul is giving him as a testimony example. If we're going to be unified, this is what it's going to take. We have to have our eyes on the one who shows us the example of humility in his own life. And then he says this in verse 12, chapter 2. Take a look there. So then, after reflecting on the importance of unity, the example of Christ's humility to achieve that unity, so then, my beloved, just as you've always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now note the command there, work out your salvation. Uh, And this is often interpreted as a general statement of sanctification. Uh, that we're being called to live a life of obedience in response to our salvation. And certainly, the Bible teaches that. <laughs> but in this context, I think there's a specific aim for that command into how they were to work out their salvation. Again, what has he been talking about throughout the letter? What did he talk about just before he gave these verses? Take note of those first two words in verse 12. So then, that's therefore. This is telling us what he's about to say in verse 12 is based upon what he has just been saying before that. And what has he been saying? Unity in relation to your gospel witness and the importance of it. So I think here he's saying work out your salvation is specific to pursue unity. And notice the similarities here in chapter 2, verse 12, with chapter 1, verse 27. Again, that core verse of the letter. In 2.12, he says, not as in my presence only, but more in my absence. And then in verse 27 of chapter 1, he says, whether I come and see you or remain absent. Also in 2.12, he gives the command, work out your salvation. In 1.27, he said, conduct yourselves. Same idea, in a manner worthy of the gospel. That word, work out and conduct, they both convey this idea of living your life. And then salvation, he mentions in 2.12, he mentions gospel in 1.27. I think he's echoing back to 1.27 and all that he has said from that point up to this point. The importance of unity to Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel to work out your salvation by being unified. And I think this is further supported in the next verse, verse 14. And here we're going to focus our attention. Really, that was all an introduction. Look at verse 14. Paul then says this, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear or shine as lights in the world. Again, let's remember, what's the background context to the letter? What are the circumstances in which Paul wrote this letter? What has he been talking about, uh, given much attention to all the way up to this point in the letter? The gospel, the proclamation of the gospel, your gospel witness, and being unified in, in pursuing that. And so here, Paul then expresses 
in a specific way, specific application. How do we deal with this threat of this unity? How do we deal with this threat for our gospel witness? What do we need to be doing? And brothers and sisters, I believe these verses here are most timely and are the need of the hour for the church today and for our church today. For just as the testimony of the Philippian church was at risk from disunity, so too we are susceptible to the same thing. And again, I don't think I need to say this, but especially what's happened in the last 12 months, and not just with COVID, right? Okay, so let's focus our attention on these two verses. Basically, two simple points. Verse 14, pursue unity. Verse 15, get the opportunity. So together, pursue unity because it gives us the opportunity. All right? Looking at verse 14, he says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Now that word, do, it's a present tense command which carries the idea of this. Make it your habit in everything you do to not grumble or dispute. Now again, remembering here the context is unity. Paul is aiming this instruction specifically at our interaction with one another. Again, this is not just a general statement. Hey, just don't complain about your circumstances. It's actually those two words are being aimed at specifically our interaction with each other. That word grumbling has the idea of a murmuring, talking behind the scenes. It means to express displeasure or complaint, but it's a specific kind of complaining. Let me give you, there's three examples of it used elsewhere in the New Testament. John chapter 7, verse 12. It says this, There was much grumbling, same word, among the crowds concerning Jesus. Some were saying he's a good man. Others were saying, no, he leads the people astray. That word grumbling there, it wasn't a grumbling to God or complaining to God. It was actually grumbling between two groups of people. They were grumbling against each other about Jesus. They were disagreeing about, oh, he's a good man. No, he's not. He's leading people astray. Acts 6.1 is another example where this word is used. It says there, at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint, a grumbling, arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. Again, notice here in this passage, it wasn't a complaining to God or against God. They were complaining against each other. One group was saying, hey, our our widows here aren't being cared for, and you guys are not giving them attention. And they're saying, oh, they're fine. We're doing fine. So they were grumbling against each other. 1 Peter 4, 9. Third use of the word. Be hospitable to one another without complaint, without grumbling. Notice there he says one another. Be hospitable to each other. Don't grumble against each other and complain against each other. And so here Paul, when he says do all things without grumbling, it's not... uh, In a general sense, don't complain against God. He's actually speaking here specifically, don't grumble against each other. And then that grumbling, what does that lead to when you complain about other people? Gossip, arguments, disruption, dissension. Well, the next word Paul uses is that very word, disputing, or has the idea of arguing. The word uh, comes from this idea of dialogue, but it's a negative dialogue. And we see that in the way it's used in the New Testament. Again, Luke 9, 46, it says, When the disciples, an argument started among them as to which of them is the greatest. 1 Timothy 
2.8. I want men in every place lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. Or this word for arguing that Paul uses here in Philippians 2.14. And so when Paul says, do all things, everything you do together in this gospel witness as you work together as a church, do all these things without arguing with each other, without complaining against one another, without causing dissension among one another. Saying, beloved, based on everything I've said to you, Paul's saying, and the importance of the gospel testimony, and the importance of your witness, and, and how you are making an impact, praise God. He says, in everything you do together, don't complain against each other. Don't argue. Don't create dissension. In other words, pursue unity. Why, Paul? Well, he tells us in verse 15. That brings us to the second point. Get opportunity. You see, he's, he's not telling them to pursue unity for the sake of unity alone. And that is a key theme, by the way, and all through the New Testament is unity. There's a bigger picture here. There's a reason that he wants them to do all things without grumbling or disputing. Look with me again at chapter 2, verse 14. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. And notice these two words, so that, purpose, statement, reason. Why? So that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world. Here is where Paul moves from the threat, the T in his SWOT analysis, to the O, the opportunity. He says, our pursuit of unity brings an opportunity. It brings a great opportunity to proclaim the gospel to a lost and dying world. Again, we see this in what he says next in verse 15. He says that as we do all things together without grumbling and disputing, without conflict, without fighting, as we do that, notice he says, we prove ourselves, we become blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach. So there's three words he uses here, three descriptions, three adjectives that he describes. Blameless, that has the idea of one who's free from accusation. And then he uses the word innocent, uh, which literally means unmixed. It's uh, used in a moral sense to convey the idea of one's not mixed with evil, undefiled. And then he uses the term above reproach or irreproachable. Uh, That comes from a word that's similar to the word he used for blameless, And it emphasizes the idea of not being able to charge someone with wrongdoing. So taken together, these these three synonyms are really communicating the same idea. That's a person who's faultless, who's blameless, who has integrity. In fact, they're so morally blameless that one could not bring a charge against them. And Paul adds to this. Notes the phrase in verse 15. uh, New American Standard translates it as uh, proved to be. A uh, more literal translation is actually become. Uh, so that do all things without grumbling or disputing so that you will become blameless and innocent, irreproachable children of God. And notice here, it's interesting. He doesn't say you are blameless, you become blameless. What does he mean by that? Uh, he says you become blameless, you become innocent, you become children of God above reproach. He's describing a process here. Now, hang with me for a minute. He's not saying we earn our blamelessness, right? We know that, right? He's not saying that that we become children of God as we avoid 
sinning against one another, that we become innocent as we pursue unity. We're not earning any right standing before God through this. That's not what he's talking about here. We know that because Paul said elsewhere in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, that, that we've been chosen by God to be holy and blameless. He says it again in Ephesians 5, 27, that Christ gave himself for the church that she would be holy and blameless. Or 1 John chapter 3, verse 2 says, you are children of God. So these remind us that at the moment of salvation, that is when we are made blameless. We are made innocent. We are above reproach. We are declared the children of God. So what does Paul mean here by saying we become blameless and innocent above reproach? You still with me here? Just nod and make me feel good, even if you aren't. Um, like my, like my, my training message, you, you know, this is being recorded too, so you can go back and listen again. It doesn't make sense. But what he's saying here in part does have the, to do with the distinction between salvation and sanctification, Right? That when we come to Christ, we are made blameless, but there's this process as well of becoming blameless. Right? It's that uh, uh, we're justified at the moment of salvation, but then there's a process of sanctification as we become more holy. Certainly, uh, that is true. William Hendrickson said this, Those who are children of God must endeavor to become children of God without fault or blame. So I think the process of sanctification is partially in view here, but... But I think there's something more Paul's getting at. Again, look with me again at verse 15, the middle of verse 15. Paul says, so that you become children of God. And notice what he says next here. Above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine or appear as lights in the world. I think Paul is using the word become here because he's reminding us that our pursuit of unity is not done in a vacuum. That there's an impact. There's a result of that unity as a world is watching us. That we are not uh, pursuing unity in isolation just so that we can get along together and, and, and enjoy coming here and being with one another. That's not primarily why Paul is concerned that we pursue unity. He's saying here, as we engage in life together, and as we do it without grumbling against each other, as we do it without uh, complaining against one another, as we do it without arguing and having conflict, as we do that, then people notice. People see that. They do. They really do. And not just people inside the church, but those outside the church. And in a greater way than ever before in human history, the world is seeing inside the church more than they ever have because of social media, for example. Because of the live stream and because of recorded messages and because of interactions they can see online, they can see into the church in a greater way than ever. So that's why I think this message is so important for us today, even more so than in the days of the Philippian church. We can't miss this point. As we make every effort to live a life that is consistent with the gospel we preach, to live a life in harmony with one another, because we are in harmony with God as we do that, we become, in the world's eyes, blameless. We become, in the view of those around us, Those with integrity. We become, as they watch us, in their assessment, we become above reproach. Does that make sense? As those in the world continue to observe us, and as we pursue unity, our our platform for the gospel grows. 
Now, I want to be careful. People don't get saved just by watching us and our example. They need to hear the gospel, right? They need to hear the message. But certainly, it is helpful for them to see it. And Paul notes here that if they don't see it, it is a hindrance and a threat to that message. John MacArthur said this, You are to be becoming the proper child, kind of child of God. In other words, the kind that would rightly represent God, that would be believable if you said, I belong to God, I'm his child. We are to be truly God's children, not only by divine decree, but by testimony as well. And Paul reinforces this point again in verse 15 when he says, Among whom? You're among these folks. They're watching us. They see us. Among whom you appear, or literally the word is shine, as lights in the world. Are you an LED or the old little tungsten filament bulb? I don't know where I'm going with that illustration. It just came in my head. <laughs> LED. Sounds good, right? I don't know. Anyway. But this should remind us of something Jesus said in Matthew 5. Remember what the words he spoke? He said there, you are the light of the world. Let your light Shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works. And in this case, Paul would say unity and glorify your Father who is in heaven. So Paul's telling us here in Philippians, we have a very specific way to be light. And that is by how we interact with each other. That is by by what we say to each other, by what we say about each other. By what we write to and about each other. And as I reflect on this passage, I just have one question for you, brothers and sisters. Do you believe it? Do you truly see the connection Paul makes here and believe that connection? The connection between our interaction together and our gospel witness. Do you see this whole issue of unity? It's not just a matter for what goes on inside the walls of this church, but the effect and what is perceived outside of the walls of this church. Do you truly recognize the impact that our interaction with one another, especially when there's conflict, do you you realize the effect that has on our gospel witness? Do you remind yourself, what is at stake before you make that remark or engage in that conflict or send that text or email or post a comment on social media. It's a great threat, brothers and sisters, but there's also a great opportunity. You know, our connection to this church goes well back before we moved down here. Um, Many of you know Brie, of course, and this church had been praying for her before she was even born. Do you know what was happening up in Idaho, uh, where we were living? There was a lady down the street. Knew our family. She would come over from time to time. And she watched. She saw as people from the church would continue to come by. They'd provide meals as we were going through that trial in our life. Um, they saw how so many people had gathered and come. The, uh, the elders of the church had come over to pray for us at times. She was watching. We had no idea. After Bree was born, 
she starts showing up at church. We learn later that her testimony said she saw the, she didn't use this word, but the unity among the people from that church. And she was, um, the Lord used that to move her towards the gospel. And she made a profession of faith just by watching us. Of course, then later hearing the gospel and responding in repentance and faith. There was a few situations like that that happened as a result of, of what we had gone through. There's a great opportunity. Jeffrey Wilson, the commentator, says this, It's only when the church is demonstrably different from its pagan environment that any impression is made upon that environment. I find it interesting here in Philippians 2.15, Paul doesn't mention what we say to the lost when we talk about our gospel witness. He doesn't bring up gospel proclamation here. Of course, he does elsewhere. Romans 10.17, he says, Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Again, no one can be saved apart from that. But, but brothers and sisters, don't think that writing a Bible verse or a, a gospel message on social media, don't think that the people reading that don't also remember what you wrote the day before. Don't think they will have forgotten any biting words, harsh comments, ridiculing sarcastic tones used towards other Christians, or in general. Don't think they won't remember that. Post Bible verses, post gospel statements. But remember, again, in a way greater than ever before in human history, they see everything, that's going, many things going on inside of the church and inside of our lives. But some may say, well, I'm, I'm standing for truth. I, I posted that because I'm defending the truth. I'm confronting error and speaking up for what is right. And I'm going to step on some toes here, but let me be blunt. Don't hide behind that. Even the Apostle Paul, probably the most bold, confrontive man in, in the church, he even said, show care when you disagree, not just in what you say, but how you say it. 2 Timothy 2.24, he says this. This is Paul, by the way, okay? The guy probably none of us would want to meet face to face because we'd be scared of this guy. But he says this, the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition. If perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth. And here in this context, he's even talking about those who may be classified as false teachers. He says, even with them, as you approach them, at least in the beginning, do it with gentleness. Are we gentle in our disagreements with each other? Disagreements will happen, certainly. Paul's just saying, recognize the threat to our gospel witness. And also recognize the opportunity. So in what you say and what you write, is your goal really to lead that other person to the knowledge of the truth or is it just to be right? Don't lose sight of what really matters. How you express your opinions publicly 
is important. Don't let what you say become a, a vehicle that undermines the gospel. In fact, let me just say this right now. Again, I'm only here today. I'm leaving. Jay will have to deal with the fallout some. But let me just say this. There is a conspiracy. There is. There's a worldwide conspiracy to stamp out Christianity. There's a worldwide conspiracy, a secret society, of, if you will, of beings who are doing all they can to attack the truth and to shut down believers and to squelch the gospel. It is happening. There is a conspiracy, and it's not QAnon. There is a powerful enemy, and the Bible talks about him all over the place. Daniel 10, Revelation 13, 2 Corinthians 4, 4, Genesis 3, Matthew 24. All over the place, there's warnings about this God of this world who is trying to do all he can to thwart the message and impact of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, just... Be careful that you don't make your primary fight for a particular form of government or how we educate our children or, or whether what our rights as Christians, whether they're being upheld or stamped upon. Arguing for those things does not save a human soul. Only the gospel does. And how we treat one another can ruin or radiate that gospel. And so again, beloved, please... Think before you speak. Think before you act. Think before you post. Please. Disunity is one of the greatest threats to our gospel witness. Paul, I mean, Paul mentions that here. He's focused on that here in the entire letter to express his concern about that. And just as Brian Biedebach said last week, When the church has peace and unity, missions happens naturally. I think he's right. So let's remember that. That not only as individuals do we have an impact, but also as a community together. That's what Paul is focusing on here. Notice he says, among whom you, plural, appear as lights, plural, in the world. So for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of a lost world that is watching, and did I mention that earlier? They are watching. They do see. Don't argue. Don't fight. Don't speak against one another. It's just, it's just not worth it. Work it out. Pursue reconciliation. Because what you do matters. How you treat fellow believers matters. And again, how we treat one another can ruin or radiate our message. Uh, said another way, unity brings opportunity. It brings an opportunity to shine forth the gospel. Let's pray. Lord, I, I know I speak for me, and I think I speak for all of us, in that various times... In our lives, that Lord, we have not displayed or um, the unity that that you've brought about by your work, that your Spirit has brought about through the work of your Son. 
Lord, we, we don't want to be a hindrance to the gospel message. We don't want to bring shame to our Savior. We, we don't want to hinder your great work here and abroad. So help us, O oh Lord, just as we do have disagreement, as we do see things differently, and, and many of these are important issues, too. They're not insignificant issues, but, Lord, at times we can tend to make them of greater importance than the gospel and, and forget that how we work through these issues has an effect on our gospel witness. And so I pray for my brothers and sisters here at Calvary Bible Church, Lord, that you would use uh, the pursuit of unity here as a means to reach this community, to, to provide a platform for the gospel. And remind us too as well, we do need to speak, Lord. We do need to proclaim. We, we do need to present that gospel message and not just assume our behavior will, will convert anyone. But Lord, we do understand that there is a close connection between what we say and what we do. So Lord, just please do a work among us, I pray in Christ's name. Amen.